This episode is brought to you in part by Thomas Nelson, publisher of The Overcomers, God's Vision for You to Thrive in an Age of Anxiety and Outrage, written and narrated by pastor and best-selling author Matt Chandler, and is available everywhere audiobooks are sold. They invited me to a party and I thought it was a party because I liked parties. <laughs> it was actually a fellowship. It was a Christian fellowship at someone's house. And at the end, they had an altar call. And it was fun because we played games and I'm a game person. Mm. Now, so it was a fun night. But at the end, it was an altar call. And the mm. altar call, I told a pastor, I felt like I had done all this horrible stuff this whole year, my freshman year. I felt like I turned my back on God. And he mm. said to me, still remember the words like it was yesterday. He said, Katera, God has forgiven you. Now it's time you forgive yourself. This is Where You're From, an origin story podcast at the intersection of faith and culture that digs into the influences and experiences that shape who we are today. Join us as we gain insight into the Bible's wisdom for all, regardless of where we're from. Hey, y'all, this is Rasul Berry. Thanks for joining me on Where You're From. This week, I want to share my conversation with Katara Washington-Patton. Katara has an extensive career in publishing, working in editorial and acquisitions at places like Weekly Reader, Jet Magazine, and Urban Ministries, just to name a few. She is the author of eight books and now serves as the executive editor of The Voices Collection by Our Daily Bread Publishing. You can find out more about Katara by clicking the links in the show notes or by visiting whereyou'refrom.org. That's where, Y-A, from, dot O-R-G. Please join me as I ask Katera Washington-Patton, where you're from. I am from Thibodeau, Louisiana, and I say that with all the pride, and I hope it comes through. <laughs> okay, okay. So for those of us that maybe don't know what that means, give us a picture of what it was like growing up in Thibodeau. At the time that I was there, I think it was probably close to 15,000 people, mm. a very small town, and it was a really weird vibe separated by race, primarily African-Americans and white. We did have several Vietnam students because during the time Mm. I was growing up, that was after the Vietnam War when many of them did come over to Louisiana. But for me, it felt very black and white. Mm. And as a scholar, which I now feel comfortable calling myself, that I was also segregated. I was segregated Mm. into a class of honors class, talented and gifted. By the time I got to high school, I was always, always underscored the only Black in the classroom. Mm. And now as I look back, I rewrite the story. I feel like they chose me. They picked Mm. one of us and said, yep, this is the one we'll take through the chain. The rest Mm. will figure it out. I honestly don't think I was that much more smart than anyone Mm. else. One Mm. of my good friends, we went to kindergarten together. He was receiving all A's throughout his fifth or sixth grade year. So if you're a student that can do that, I don't understand why that doesn't translate later on in life as well. Okay. So, you know, we're getting this picture. So Thibodeau, small town. Small town. uh, Very racially stratified. Yes. Now, how did your parents get there? My parents actually born and raised Thibodeau, Louisiana. (laughs) I used to ask my mom, why didn't they migrate? You know, I knew people migrated. I knew people Mm. left the South. My parents were just happy there. They were content Mm. there. They met each other and their grandparents, like my mother's great grandmother, lived next door to my father's people. And in fact, when my dad says he found out who my mother's grandmother was, he was afraid. He was like, Mm. oh, she's related to me. That's how close they were. (laughs) His family was right next to her. So yeah, they just lived there. My dad's family had a farm. They took care of crops. In fact, my father had to quit school in 10th grade. So his family could use the money from him working. My mother lived probably more (laughs) in the city of Thibodeau, Louisiana, but she always told us the story. She went to work at 12, taking care Mm. of people's homes. She was clearly a domestic and that shaped her and it shaped how she raised us because she saw family sitting down eating dinner every night and even mm-hmm. at the age of 12, this little girl who whose parents were never married actually said, 
I want to have a family that sits mm. down and has a meal. So not only are you from a small town, but it, it goes deep, even to the point where your parents, all the peoples knew each other. Oh, my goodness. Cousins <laughs> upon cousins upon cousins. Both my mom and dad came from big families. Okay. My father's mother and um, father both came from big families. And we mm. knew all of these people. We went to church right. where my grandfather once pastored. So this was mm. my father's grandfather. So we were deep. The the community knew us. We knew everyone in the community. So Thibodeau was it. Nice. So you mentioned that your mother worked as a domestic. Mm-hmm. What was your father doing? My father did lots of uh, manual labor as well. Mm. Some of the jobs I really remember, the sugar plantation. Let's bring Louisiana all the way around, right? Mm. He also did truck driving later on in life. Suffered a layoff, had to shift and move. But I, I tell a story around that. I probably was in eighth grade and it was rumored that the sugar mill was laying off and we were going to prayer service at the time. And I remember that's the first time I prayed specifically for something. I prayed that my father not be laid off. And lo and behold, he was laid off. And I don't think I got mad with God, but what I saw was God carried my family through. I literally don't recall missing a beat. I still participated in all the extracurricular activities because my mom, having seen that lifestyle, decided her kids were going to do all of that. We were in swimming. I was in dance. We were in piano. My mom really had a vision for how she wanted to raise her family Mm. differently than she was raised because of opportunities. But honestly, her being in that environment of being a domestic for so long, and she did later begin to work for the state, which is an amazing story in itself too. But I think early on, she had a vision for how she wanted Mm. to run her family, how she wanted to see Mm. things play out in her family. And and she pushed through that. You know, a black woman got a vision, she gonna get done. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> yeah. And and part of that pushing is in spite of the odds. Yes. What were some of the obstacles that you saw that your mom had to go through? With my mom particularly, I think it was mostly financial. Mm. She had big dreams. <laughs> and going to swimming lessons, piano lessons, dance lessons is not cheap. I'm a mom now. I know right. that for sure. But <laughs> yeah. she did whatever she needed to do. She and my mm. dad worked very hard. I honestly Mm. don't remember them missing a day of work. Um, I Mm. think they both worked together, put their money together and tried to be wise stewards and put us first and our education first. So I definitely think finances was an obstacle. I think education even. um, She often talked about deciding to get married and not pursuing her education. So I think that resulted in her pushing all of her kids. She has three kids who received Mm -hmm. college degrees and she was adamant about that. It was just a given that I'd go to college. They Mm -hmm. also really pushed faith. I mean, my parents were the senior deacon. My father's still senior deacon at his church. My mother, who's deceased, she was the Sunday Mm -hmm. school superintendent up until maybe two or three years before she passed. Then she was Sunday school emeritus. And my mom will talk about being in, I think it was Baptist Bible Union. She would talk about how they read the Bible at night Mm. on Sundays. And that shaped Mm. her in a lot of ways. Mm. And so she was a Bible lover and she Mm. loved teaching the Bible and just spreading God's word through Sunday school Bible learning, as well as she was what I called one of the first women preachers I ever heard at the Mm. time in Southern Louisiana in the Baptist tradition that was not necessarily accepted, but they would call her to do Women's Day. And I would hear those sermons. And I still remember some of the things she said in those sermons. Mm. And there was even a time when one of the pastors asked her to write a sermon. And I knew it because I was there. You know, I was soaking up all the information and I heard him read it word for word. (laughs) So I do believe she was ahead of her time. I think she was pushing up against cultural norms, but also as a respectful Proverbs 31 woman, Mm. she wasn't going to do too much of it. Gotcha. Yeah, that, that that says something, the level of esteem. And I, I remember Women's Day. Women's Day is lit at a Baptist yes, church. I absolutely. mean, the folks, white. everybody dressed. <laughs> yes, women in the white. Hats. <laughs> and she, she did all of that. <laughs> nice, nice. The hat game is, I mean, amazing. Yes. It, you know, it's uh, one of the things I remember and cherish the most. So you mentioned that you had an older sister. Yes. Tell us about your siblings and the 
impact that they had on you growing up? Yeah, I had have both an older sister and an older brother. And again, mm. I really point to them as role models. I, I can't mm. underscore that enough. I was like, we were not a rich family financially, but we were rich spiritually and we were mm. rich in what we had at, through our love. My brother, I'll start with him. <laughs> I love this story. My brother is eight years older than I am. So I remember his high school graduation, big deal. I remember his college graduation. He graduated from Southern University in Baton Rouge, another Mm. HBCU. I was probably about 13, going on 14. I sat with the program for the graduation in my hand, and I saw cum laude next to his name. You know, they put the little asterisk. Yeah. That's cute. And so I leaned over and asked mom what that meant. Oh, that means he's really, really smart. And I was like, oh, okay. I was like, but this one says magna cum laude and the other one says summa cum laude. And my mom laughed. She was like, they were even smarter. I said, that day, I'm going to graduate summa cum laude. Wow. As a 13-year-old. What wow. kind of role model is that to put in your mm. place? Now, we know that competition can go both ways, right? right. For me, it was, I want to be like my brother. I want to be better than mm. my brother. I want the respect my mom has for my brother. Mm. So I did that. My sister actually looks a little different, but later in life, I learned to respect her even more because mm. here she was sandwiched between my super, super smart brother and me who thought I was super, super smart and <laughs> I was loud and I was going to let you know I was smart. But Kim was a hard worker. Mm. Kim went to nursing school and she worked really hard. I remember she and mom praying on the phone sometimes because mm. it was hard. So she nice. pushed and she got through nursing school and she graduated at 22 and she's been a nurse all that time and, and a phenomenal one as well. People mm. ask for her to care for them because she's such a caring, hardworking person. Mm. That's great. So you mentioned earlier that you got into these advanced classes, but then later reflecting as the only black person, you started to wonder if there was maybe an intentional limitation on how many black children would be put in that spot. What caused you to start to wonder if there was maybe some other reasons why you were the only one that looked like you there? That's a great question. My goodness, Russell. (laughs) I think my education at Dillard began to open my eyes. Mm. One, Dillard was a wonderful ground for me. I was taught by Black people who had PhDs. We read. We, I mean, Mm. they opened up a new canon for me. I had an African-American literature class where we studied Langston Hughes and Nella Larson. And these people were poured into my vein. It was amazing. Like, I didn't expect Mm. to be getting this out of college. So I began to just think a little differently. And then I actually worked in education a little bit in curriculum writing and reading through things and realizing people rise to what your expectations are, I just Mm. really got struck with what were the expectations of those people in Thibodeau? Why was there such a divide intellectually? And it really made me say, hmm, I thought back Mm. to the people who started with me. I had lots of friends and the Black girls were smart. The Black boys Mm. were smart. And I actually, um, I do remember I was working at Weekly Reader in Connecticut. That was one of my first full-time jobs. And I would go to classrooms and observe. And I would go to this rich, posh suburban school in Connecticut, observe those kids And I wrote for second and third graders. So usually I was in a second and third grade class. Then I would go to inner city Hartford and watch those kids. And by second grade, the black boys were raising their hands. They were excited. They were smart. Mm -hmm. I made a comment to the teacher and she said, their environment gets them around that third and fourth grade. Mm -hmm. But she says the summer between third and fourth grade, she could see a difference. Mm -hmm. I think that probably contributes to it. But- If a teacher is saying that, don't they come in with a different attitude? By the time they're in fourth grade, they're looking at them more as Mm. becoming young men, becoming young girls. So our expectations and our attitudes Mm. about them have shifted. Right. And it sounds like your mother had very high expectations. Oh, yes. Oh, right. She wasn't playing that. She was not going to play that. Not at all. Got it. So at what point does writing become something that you realize you take to. Uh, Yeah, I've written all my life. In eighth grade, I 
told the teacher I wanted to start a newspaper. And that's where I got to also say some of those teachers in that school system, they were very good. I literally can still see her face. It was my eighth grade grammar teacher. I said, I think we should have a newspaper. She almost ran to the office with that idea. Basically, she was like, this little girl has an idea. We're going to make it happen. We produced Mm -hmm. a newspaper. And that same class, I entered an essay contest, read it on the radio. So communication Mm -hmm. was beginning to be a part of who I was. And I enjoyed it. And a church friend actually said she was majoring in communication. And I thought that was speaking on the radio, speaking and doing broadcasting, which I was interested in. And I pursued that. And at Dillard University, again, I will call her name this time, Lisa Frazier Page. She actually pulled me aside my sophomore year, just like a mother at a HBCU. We looked at her as a big sister because she had been to Dillard herself. And she said, I know you're interested in broadcasting, but I actually love your writing. And I think you should find an internship and really pursue writing. And so, of course, that meant I was going to pursue an internship and find writing. She was also the instructor who a couple of years later pulled me aside and said, you need to apply to the Medill School of Journalism at Northwestern. It's one of the highest ranked journalism schools. She too had been there. So Dillard and then Northwestern. She clearly had every confidence in the world that I could do that. I hadn't heard of Northwestern. And I mean, yeah, that's that's like the Harvard of journalism schools. I mean, you know. And to have a teacher say she thinks you should apply. I didn't know anything about Illinois, Northwestern, Mm. whatever, even journalism school for that matter. So it sounds like going back to Thibodeau that- For you, it was a community of great support, great love, you know, extended family. Yeah, there were, you know, kind of these challenges that you had and economic or whatnot, but that seemed like it was more in the background. It was in the Um, background. And may I add, my church family, they affirmed me. And in fact, when I was there for my dad's birthday in April of this year, I mentioned to the congregation, because it's still the congregation where you stand up and you got to say hello, right? (laughs) (laughs) You're a visitor. And although you grew up there, but I challenged them to be as affirming to the youth Mm. today as they were Mm. to me. Rasul, I don't know if I'd be as confident as I am Mm. if I didn't have those sweet women speaking Mm. into my ears. I would play on the piano. I really am not a piano player, but I would play on the Sundays that we didn't have big services. You know how those churches do. By second Sunday, we didn't have many people there. They would leave a dollar on the piano for me. People Mm. who had meager incomes, clearly, set Mm. incomes, they would leave dollars for me. They would give me peppermints. They would tell me, go Mm. on, girl. Every time I spoke in the church, I felt like I probably was on Broadway. I mean, the amazing applause and just confirmation Mm. these people had. They would always ask how you're doing, how your grades. That Mm. that's black church for me. Mm. Something I think we're missing clearly these days, but Mm. that set the stage for me. You know, so I know you mentioned that moment of praying for your, you know, your father's job and then now being immersed in this incredibly supportive church experience. Like when do you remember like your relationship with Christ being formed and like, you know, real? Real, real. I um I do think kind of middle school was that prayer time. I don't think I thought much about it after that. I did actually write what I would call speeches in the church early on. And I remember, I think my mom wrote my first one. So my mom was really a writer as well. And I remember going to her probably Mm. 10th grade maybe and saying, mom, can I write the next one? And I remember my father's face. He was like, of course you can. Like, if you really want to write this, you can. Mm. So I believe I was developing there. But my turning point was freshman year at Dillard University. (laughs) I often encourage parents, let them go, let them do what they need to do. If the foundation is right, they'll come back to it. That's my testimony. That's easier to say as a youth worker (laughs) than to say as a parent now, I'm realizing. (laughs) But that's what I did. I was smart enough to know my mama wasn't playing that, my daddy either. So I did everything they said up until 12th Mm. grade, up until college. College was my escape. I was like, okay, I could be in by that time. I could not hang out with this group. I cannot go out. I can do all this because I'm going to be able to go away to college and do whatever I want. And I did to a degree. 
And most people now probably be like, oh, you weren't that wild. But I felt empty inside. Mm. I felt like I turned away from my teaching. Mm. And looking back, I can see it was probably the best thing in the world to happen to me. Because mm. once I recommitted to God, once I felt that emptiness, it was mm. a campus person. You know campus ministry. Oh, yeah. They invited me to a party and I thought it was a party because I liked parties. <laughs> it was actually a fellowship. It was a Christian fellowship at someone's house. And at the end, they had an altar call. And it was fun because we played games and I'm a game person mm. all. So it was a fun night. But at the end, it was an altar call. And the mm. altar call, I told a pastor, I felt like I had done all this horrible stuff this whole year, my freshman year. I felt like I turned my back on God. And he mm. said to me, still remember the words like it was yesterday. He said, Katera, God has forgiven you. Now it's time you forgive yourself. When I tell you those words sent me out, <laughs> those words have stayed with me now. Now, if you, mm. you, you're 19, I probably was 18, and that mm. gets in your spirit and really mm. sinks in. Oh, me and the Lord, we were good after that. <laughs> we have clearly had some ups and downs, but that right. painted, wow. the, that set the stage for me. I got serious mm. about this God thing early. Mm. And it's also a sense of like, to whom much has been given, yes. much is required. Yep. And you knew all of what was poured into you yep. and the teaching that you sat under and the yep. aspirations. And so you know what that's like when you have that sense of exposure. But, you know, we did skip something. I had to circle back because, you know, <laughs> at eight, you were talking that talk about having those words behind your name at graduation. Yes. Well, what ended up happening? Well, in 1992, when I got my Bachelor's of Arts in uh, Humanities from Dillard mm. University, I was one of three summa cum laude graduates. So There it yep, is. He, he did it. I literally, I think I made one or two Bs in college. And, and that's even with that empty freshman year, because that's mm. how I was able to play the role. I got great grades. When my mama right. dropped me off that first semester, she was like, I want another 3.9. I think that was my grade point average. And I was like, okay. So I was, I could have continued continued down that path right. of doing that double life because right. I was getting great grades. I, I right. was well prepared. I think my school system in Louisiana prepared me greatly. And by the time mm. I got to Dillard, you know, I could halfway listen and party. <laughs> and that is what I did. But right. I thank God for that emptiness. Oh, I thank mm. God for that moment because it became so real to me. It's mm. not something I heard about. It's not something I read mm. about. It's something I experienced. Yeah. And so on the other side of that moment, you know, that party that you went to, like, how did your life change? What did that look like? That looked like me really getting serious. Like, what does mm. God's word say? It meant studying God's word, going to the mm. prayer services, really seeking out Christians on the campus. And I still mm. feel this in general. I was a little caught up in wanting to be popular. Mm. I was a mainstream girl. You know, I did the mm. pledging. I did the student government. I... I, I wanted to be in that crowd. And I think there's definitely some leadership development and great things about those things. But also that comes along with not necessarily always standing up for things you know are right. right. So I, I still struggled and danced along that line. But because mm. of that experience, I knew where I needed to land. Yeah. So you're there at Diller and it sounds like that's when this professor sees your talent in writing and, and really begins to encourage you yes. to write more. Yes, absolutely. And your yeah. faith is kind of combined. So at that time, did you know that you wanted to intersect the faith in the writing or was that still kind of coming Ooh, together? We, absolutely not. That was nowhere <laughs> on my, my mind. That's why I right. used to laugh and say, girl, you try to plan your life. I was literally one of those people, five years I'll do this, five years I'll... You haven't been able to get that right yet. <laughs> that is not mm. how it follows. Why you want to start doing it now? I thought I would do magazines after broadcasting. Mm. I, I figured I would be the little newscaster person. Right. And then I did an internship there because Dillard did encourage that. And I really appreciate that. Those three months I spent in a newsroom let me know I didn't have the personality for it. And it wasn't really my mm. vibe. Let me go on the yeah. writing. I wanted to do magazine publishing. I went to Northwestern and focused on magazine publishing. I went to Essence. I went to Ebony. That's where I wanted to be. I knew earlier then that I wanted to work with Black people in culture or either education. So that's how I ended up at Weekly Reader, the education piece. Soon after that, I ended up at Jet Magazine. Gotcha. But it was at Jet Magazine that actually 
by that point, I had joined my church and I was going to prayer service on fire, continuing that fire piece. And I was at a prayer service on a Wednesday night. We used to do three prayers. One would be for yourself. One would be for the church, the other for the world or something like that. And the deacons leading the one for yourself, they were like, pray for yourself. So you got in your little group of two, no more than three is how they would say it. And I literally prayed for career direction. My career had always been important to me. Here I was back in Chicago at Jet Magazine, enjoying it, but not quite feeling like it was the fulfillment of my dreams, of my career. So I prayed for career direction that very night, that very, 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 very night. As I was turning left onto the Dan Ryan, I still remember it. I was living on the north side and something in my spirit said, send your resume to Urban Ministries. I knew who Urban Ministries was because I had been in Sunday school, my mom's Sunday school superintendent. I I was literally in Sunday school at 24 years old because that's what you do when you're on fire with the Lord, right? Even if I went out the night before, I would would still be in Sunday school. And so I knew Urban Ministries. I had no idea they were in a suburb of Chicago. I literally went home. I had a Smith Corona word process at the time that, that dates us, right? And <laughs> I put that resume paper in and printed it out and mailed it off. I literally turned to the first page of the book, got the address from the mass head, sent it wow. over to Urban Ministries. Within three days, the president of the company, who's still a good friend of mine, he called and we had like an hour conversation on the phone. And I said, well, do you have any positions? And he said, at the risk of sounding super spiritual, we don't like to turn people away whom the Lord has sent us. Mm -hmm. And I ended up editing a teen magazine, which before then, that's what I had been focused on, thinking I wanted to do teen stuff, Black culture, Here we go. I literally used to send notes to YSB every other month because, you know, when you're in that college readiness career placement, they tell you, just send them a note, send them a note. You know, YSB YSB is Young Sisters and Brothers. It was owned by BET. In fact, I went to their office in Virginia as a young, aggressive career hunter. You know, you go for an informational Mm -hmm. interview. You stop by, you say hello. They never, ever called me. Emma. <laughs> and you're thinking, well, my resume, they should have called me, whatever. But they never called me. And that day when my first proofs came through from the Urban Ministries magazine I was doing, it was a Sunday school curriculum called In Teen Magazine. The day those first proofs came on the mass head, it said, award-winning teen magazine. And I just mm-hmm. went in again in my car when I saw those proofs saying, Lord, this is what I wanted. And you directed Mm. me here. Wow, that's powerful. And and I have to take a kind of rewind because Jet Magazine, we got to go back to talk about the significance of that publication. Absolutely. Especially at that time. Tell us the significance of Jet Magazine. Jet Magazine, my goodness. And I'll tell you even more so the significance in my life. I literally sat at a conference table every day and pitched ideas to John H. Johnson in the flesh, wow. you know, like. And who's John H. Johnson for those that don't know? He is the founder of basically an empire. He founded mm. Ebony, he founded Jet, he founded Fashion Fair Cosmetics, and he, ooh, he got some stories. And he was a grandfather. Like, he would tell you them stories now. <laughs> when you're sitting <laughs> in that conference room, you were gonna get an earful about how he made the decision to put Emmett Till's picture on the cover of Jet Magazine, which helped to shape the civil rights movement and what we Mm. were experiencing. So he was a man who had a vision of showing Black people, mostly Mm. in positive ways. You know, when you used to get the old Ebony magazines, you would see these big houses, you would see celebrities, you would see a different style of living. And Jet was the news magazine. But that's who I got to sit under. I got to look and see. And doing my downtime, because, you know, publishing's up and down, I would be in the archives reading the old magazines. He used to have an Ebony Jr. I would be reading through those magazines saying, okay, I'm going to create a teen magazine. So what do I need to learn from the failure of Ebony Jr.? Why isn't Ebony Jr. still published? So um, even then, I was pretty focused on my career and what did I want to do next? And so I took advantage of being amongst history. 
I mean, Rasul, when we walked into that building, he was also the first African-American, probably the only, to have a building on the historic Michigan Avenue in Chicago. Mm. And when you walked into the building, it was furnished and Black art was featured on the wall, each floor, 10 floors. It Mm. was just an amazing place to be, like history in the making. You got to sit there at the feet of a man who simply had a dream. Wow. What was your parents' response to you getting that position? They were very, very, very proud. And Mm. just a little nugget about my mom again, when I finished Northwestern, Northwestern was a year program, but you also got the option of reporting in Washington, D.C. And Mm. that was one of my goals, because as you can tell, I was goal-oriented. I had that five-year plan, report in D.C. And so I got to do that as a part of the Northwestern curriculum my last semester there. Then I was like, okay, I need a job. I started applying and I was talking to the associate publisher of Jet Magazine. In fact, he came to D.C. for, I think it was the 30th March on Washington reunion. I wrote a story Mm. for him. He liked it. We started talking. But at the same time, Weekly Reader, whom I had seen advertised at Northwestern, and I was like, ooh, Mm. education, I could do that. They moved faster than Jet moved. And my mother prayed with me on the phone about what Mm. I should do. Because there was a part of me that was like, oh, I should wait out Jet. And the other part was like, well, you got the bird in the hand here. You better go to Weekly Reader. And I did decide to go to Weekly Reader. And two years later, Jet came back around. And actually, it was through a layoff. I got laid off from Weekly Reader at two Mm. years. And then I sent my resume again to Jet. And they're like, come on down. And the beauty of that story, as I learned to rely on God, that's what I learned through my layoff. That was the theme that went through my head, rely more fully on me. You might be relying on me, but you're checking your paycheck every two weeks too. How do you more fully rely on me? And I got the job at Jet, stayed in a hotel free of cost for 30 days, got everything in my little apartment, got my little car shipped back to Chicago, a place I really wanted to live. So I see that job as God reminding me to depend more Mm. fully on him. And even in ways I don't understand or see, he's gonna Mm. make a way. When we come back, Katera will share how her success in publishing led her to the last place she expected, into depression. That's coming next on Where You're From. This episode is brought to you by Church Law and Tax. Church Law and Tax understands the realities of church work, helping thousands of churches stay informed and get equipped with comprehensive resources on legal, tax, financial, and risk management matters. Do you have a question on housing allowance? Need information on selecting church insurance? Looking for insights on what is or isn't unrelated business income? Or how about some guidance on how to properly receive charitable contributions? ChurchLawAndTax.com equips you for success with access to the most respected and knowledgeable attorneys, accountants, financial advisors, and risk managers guiding churches today. Get the practical information and timely coverage you need to keep your church up to date and lead your ministry with confidence. Join ChurchLawAndTax.com today. Hey, y'all, before we get back to my conversation with Katera Washington-Patton, I wanted to share a quick teaser from our next episode with Chrysinthia Floyd. This is where you're from. I had one woman, her name is Soha, that when James died, uh, she called me and she said, hey, Chrissy, I want to, every Sunday at seven o'clock, I want to just pray for you. I just want to call you and, and pray for you. And I I pretty much said no. And she called back and she goes, okay, how about I call you and you just answer the phone? You don't have to, you don't have to pray. You don't have to say anything. I just, you know, you don't have to participate. I just need you to pick up the phone. And I would say about the good first eight months to a year, I picked up the phone. I listened. Soha would pray, and I would say, talk to you later, and I'd hang up. Now let's get back to our conversation with Katera Washington-Patton on Where You're From. 
knowing the prestige and the significance of Jet Magazine, and even though UMI definitely in its own right, you know, it's hard to go to a black church and not see <laughs> yep. Sunday school curriculum right. that was published by them, but it's different. Was that a hard transition when you're in the car and you're getting that 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 word? That That's a great question. Thank you. It's twofold. I started at UMI part-time. So okay. let me just also paint that picture that picks up a little bit from that layoff. Finances had been a struggle for me. So here I was laid off. John H. Johnson sends for me, gives me 30 days at a hotel. Literally, I was at the Hilton too, right next to, <laughs> to the building. Wow. So a nice hotel. I begin working there and I'm still trying to get on my feet a little bit because Chicago's expensive. And then comes two years later, I get asked to edit this magazine for Urban Ministries. I'm doing both. I'm working full-time okay. and part-time, and my bills are getting paid <laughs> because <laughs> when you get a full-time and a half-time job, you really can do some things. In the midst of that, I got to buy a condo. I even thought, like, how could I buy something? My credit's awful. Mm. But I realized, oh, you had been paying your bills on time because when you got more money in your account, that's how it happens. Right. So I was doing that part-time, and Urban Ministries said, come on full-time. For me, I was like, mm, I'm good. I'm doing half time and full time. And, right. and you know, Jet was still Jet. I was interviewing Jamie Foxx. I got a picture with me and LL Cool J and my girlfriend. We wow. fight over it. Yeah. And we got tickets to everything front row because, you know, that's kind of the, the industry. Yeah. So, yeah, I was really good. I didn't want to go to Urban Ministries full time. I was happy now. And I prayed. And this is where devotions come in a little bit with my kind of obsession with devotions. I was reading a devotional Bible and it had a little devotions in it and it was asking you shall receive. I was like, oh, that's a nice little scripture. And the devotion part said, but really what we should be asking is for God's will to be in our lives and for our will to align with his. And then you're going to receive it. Just a word and a little Bible, right? You know, you read that that morning. Yeah, yeah. I read that that morning, went to meet with the vice president of editorial at Urban Ministries because we had set up an interview. We met. I remember we went to a restaurant, I think, and I went to the bathroom and I was like, you got to calm down, girl. What's wrong with you? Why do you want this? Why are you excited about this? Didn't you come here prepared to tell him you're good? <laughs> I'm going to keep doing half and whole. I literally, I, I could tell you the date because it was um, the movie with Sinke in it. I'm a star. I was supposed to go to the movie after that interview, but I was, my brain was moving too fast. There was something happening that was telling me to get excited about this job that I didn't want. Mm. So I went to the gym because <laughs> I was like, I got to ride my bike here. And that's when it came to my memory. Didn't you pray this morning? for my will to be done, mm. ask and you shall receive. I was like, well, all right. That was it, literally. And I am kind of usually like that. If I get a clear answer, I could say no. I was like, I'm going to leave, Jet. And people looked at me like I was crazy, especially mm. people who thought that was the pinnacle of Black right. journalism. And it was, yeah. but that wasn't my pinnacle. And I was pretty mm. clear on that. I just didn't know it would look like going to a Sunday school publisher <laughs> that my girlfriend and I was like, seem like you could put on a little knit sweater and do that in your basement, right? <laughs> no, it actually became a wonderful opening mm. into the wide world of Christian publishing that's publishing with a meaning, my Lord. Mm. And we want to talk about spiritual growth. My time at UMI, which was between about 1998 and 2004, the spiritual growth, I mean, sometimes I literally have to tell myself, Katera, you should know this. You should be able to handle this. You read the Bible eight hours a day and you get paid for it. <laughs> like, come on, you know, who has that opportunity? That's amazing. And I love what you said. I get to do it. Now, you mentioned, you know, in kind of passing that you have this obsession, as you called it, with the <laughs> devotionals. That's an interesting phrase. I don't think I've ever heard that before. <laughs> I know, right? <laughs> like, tell us about that. <laughs> a part of my Christian growth has been to wake up every morning, I, and most mornings, let, let's put that out there correctly, yeah. most mornings and have my time with God. That has been... I think the class we called it at my church was Space for God. It was kind of a mm -hmm. foundational course to help you on your journey and your path. And I took that for real. You know, sometimes people say they, they doing this, they go into these classes. I, I 
accent that in. And they were like, repeat this throughout the day. I belong to God. I mean, when you start doing those things, Mm -hmm. it really makes a difference. So for me, I've read devotions most of my life, most of my serious Christian life. Let's say, you know, once I got out of college and they've changed my life. They've really Mm -hmm. changed my life. And now I've gotten the opportunity to write some. So I just see that as a full circle moment. Yeah. And speaking of writing some, you write this in the introduction of Navigating the Blues. Mm -hmm. Let me begin by stating I'm a Christian who has suffered with depression for many years. Mm. Some of those years I've silently slept more than I care to admit. And you go on, like, it almost feels like this charmed life that you've described, you know, to this point of just loving community, supportive professors, incredible opportunities. And of course, there's always other challenges, but... That sentence is a bit surprising to hear in light of some of those things. So when did that part of life begin to emerge for you? Yeah, that's an awesome question. And I had a really good friend also interview me recently for his book. He was like, I never knew you suffered with depression. And I, I kind of appreciated that comment, but it also underscores the seriousness of things. I wear mm. a mask. I can wear a mask well. Mm. I know how to present in front Mm. of people. I know how to suffer silently without hopefully letting it affect too many areas of my life. My close, close friends, they know because there is Mm. truly a difference. And I'm no psychologist and I've played around with my therapist with this thought, but I kind of think high achievers hit reality at some point. Mm. I expected life to be good for me. I expected the best. I expected all A's in life. This was the life I lived, right? Right. And what happens when that doesn't happen? What happens when C's come? And I don't even just mean real letter grades, just the mid part. How do you live in the middle? You know, there's highs and there's lows. And we know we pray real hard in the lows and we rejoice in the highs. But what happens when life is Years upon years upon years of being Mm -hmm. in the middle. Like, how do you deal with that? And I believe that was a big part of mine. Another big part of it was, again, overachieving. I had been the seminary three and a half years and working full time, working in the church. Sometimes, like literally, my father came to visit and he was like, you're going to have a nervous breakdown. And he was just looking at me and I was thinking he was old school. You know, they don't know Mm. much. (laughs) Kids have that (laughs) viewpoint. This just looks different for him. This is my lifestyle. But I was doing too much. I was Mm. really, 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 really doing too much. And depression can be a byproduct of that crash. I literally had an awful relationship and Mm. one that I thought I had prayed for. So when you get what you've prayed for and then it hits rock bottom, oh, that's some depression coming in. My mother's death. I've had this conversation with someone very close to me recently. Sometimes in the Christian community, when, like you say, you have the charmed life, the belief. We were believers, baby. Serious believers. Mama was a serious believer. So you think, oh, this is what she wanted out of life, right? Like literally, I prayed at her deathbed. I said, God, she signed up with you a long time ago. Now let her get her reward. Release her, let her sleep. That sounds good. That is truly what we believe. But now what do we do when we have to live with it after? How do I continue to live this life on this earth without that person who was that supportive of me? Mm. When I got married, there's a picture in my guest room right now of my sister, my brother, and me. And I look a hot mess because Mm. having those two people on each side of me reminded me of who was missing. My Mm. daddy was there off doing something else, but he wasn't in that picture. I'm not often with my brother and sister without my mama. Mm. My mama should have been there. So how can I have a wedding and pose for a picture? I mean, I was bawling. You would have thought. I didn't want to get married. I mean, that picture looks really bad, but I keep it there as a reminder. And that's actually something I say in Navigating the Blues. Grief takes on two sides. Even the happy times have an undertone of something is missing. Mm. When I had my child who my mother has never laid eyes on, Mm. I was happy. I had my baby, Mm. right? right? But I also felt, oh my gosh, this is a time for a mama to be here. 
where is grandma? And my mother had that level of personality. I would joke with her best friend who was still living at the time. I was like, my mama had retired already, but she'd probably have to go back and get another job because she loved to shop. And here was a little (laughs) girl in her family that she would be shopping for. Before I even got married and bought a place, a condo, I walked into it. It was the second one I had got the opportunity to purchase, this girl with bad credit. I walked in and it was a bigger place. And I was like, oh, mama would love to decorate this. The people Mm. had already given me the keys because it was in the same building. I was an hour late for my closing because I had to pull myself together because Mm. the grief just overwhelmed me of knowing my mama's not here to see this. So as many highs as I get, I have that reminder. Mm. Yeah, you see the smile, you see the joy because that that is real too, but um, it's not the whole story. I appreciate you sharing with us uh, that and giving us the whole story. One of the things that I would imagine and you kind of brought up is becoming an expectant mother and then not having your mother there when, you know, what was your pregnancy like and what did God show you in that time? I had a beautiful pregnancy, an awful delivery and just issues with that, which have still impacted my health. But a woman came into our lives whom I knew because she was the godmother of a friend. I just knew her as a person. When I was looking for someone to care for Kayla, when I went back to work, this person came and she literally became our surrogate grandmother. Her personality, the way she interacted with Kayla. I mean, God just showed me, baby, I got you. You know, and, and I didn't know where she was coming from. I hadn't, you know, talked to her before. They literally had a beautiful relationship and the type of relationship I imagine Kayla would have had with my mother. Kayla has wow. many other women in her life, Derek, my husband's mother. The personality is different. It looks different. But this particular woman, she actually passed last year. She got to keep Kayla for 12 years. And the relationship they had was just a beautiful indication of what Kayla would have had with my mother. We called her Granny. In Granny's obituary, they listed her as having two grandkids. One was her biological grandkid, and the other one was Kayla. So God even made a way in that. Look at that. Like, who could have thought of that story, right? Yeah. (laughs) So, yeah, he he let me know that he still had me and he he still had people that he was placing in my life to to fill that void, even though there's Mm. no replacing my mama, there were people there. Now, one of the things I appreciate in your book, Navigating the Blues, is you acknowledge that even in the very positive church and ministry experiences that you've had, Oftentimes, the church can really struggle with identifying and responding to those who might be struggling with mental health. So I guess, how did you experience that? And even when did depression become a word that you even acknowledge was fitting your own experience? Yeah, that's a great question again. I think the church, thankfully, is doing much better than originally Mm. when I probably first started suffering and acknowledging depression. I like that we're having mental health awareness days. Mm. My pastor makes it a point to preach about some real struggles he's had in his family, he's seen in his family. We've had people come into the church and share their struggles with different mental health challenges. Um, So I love that it's becoming more mainstream, more acceptable. Therapy is not a bad word. So I, I like that. I think we're catching up. I hope we continue. But when I first, probably I would put it around 2000, I really began to struggle. I probably had remnants of it earlier. Mm. I dare say there were moments I was pretty sad as a child. So there could have been something chemical going on. I, I'm not 100% sure. But when I first wanted to go to a therapist, it took right. a while to go, but I mentioned to a friend that I was thinking about it. And mm. she told me, me, which I felt like spoke a little bit like the church speaks. She said, all you need is the Lord and your Bible. This was a friend, a good, Mm. good friend who I was confiding in. And I realized, one, I couldn't tell her anything else (laughs) about (laughs) this struggle. But two, like, what does that mean? And how many people Mm. really think like that? that Jesus is the solution. And we we know, you didn't hear me talk, Jesus is, Jesus is yeah. the solution, Jesus is the answer. Right. But at the same time, 
Jesus gives us people. Jesus gives mm-hmm. us medicine and and technology to help us in the midst of days like this, in the midst of things that we cannot handle. Therapy, talking through your issues. Mm-hmm. And most times, and, and it's been my experience, things creep up that you didn't even know were there because mm-hmm. you've dedicated 45 minutes to talking to a professional who right. knows how to sit and ask questions. I, I often joke with people about, yeah, we think going to our girlfriend's going to help us, but they got their own issues. They going <laughs> to throw back another problem right at you or a similar situation. That's how conversations go. I say one thing, you're going to say something else. You're going to say, right. so that's not really therapy. Therapy is sitting down and going deep and mm. thinking about it. And then you got to do the work. That comes along with some of the things you uncover. So, yeah, but back to your original question about the church, I feel like we've come a long way. Just the fact Mm -hmm. that we're normalizing, talking about therapy, normalizing, seeking treatment, giving self-care, all of those things work toward um, creating wholeness and a healthy mental state. It's not an either or, it's a both and. And I can have my Bible, I can have my faith, I can have my Jesus, and I certainly can have my therapist helping me unpack some of those things. That's so good. What prompted you? Because you, you know, you come from a mm-hmm. big family in a small town. Anybody knows in a small town. Everybody <laughs> knows the business. Yes. So as a result of that, people can tend to be secretive about their struggles mm-hmm. because, you know, it's just very well known and 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 people talk. People talk. <laughs> How was that process like for you to get to the place where knowing coming from this family, coming from a church experience where this isn't necessarily normalized. You said to yourself, it's important for me not to just experience the benefits of therapy and and sharing about mental health myself, but to share this with other people. Mm -hmm. Yeah. A friend asked me to speak at a prayer breakfast. Actually, either that or another place I was speaking and I was really praying about what are you going to speak about? It was like a women's conference. You know how we get together. Women love those women conferences. (laughs) And I really wanted to speak about something one that God wanted me to talk about, but that was going to be impactful and, you know, important. Like we could get up and say things, but what really will be helpful? And it was like, I felt in my spirit that I needed to speak about depression. I literally made a post on Facebook, my favorite medium. And I said, I'm coming out of the closet. I'm sharing my struggle with depression. And when I tell you, my DMs blew up. <laughs> wow. People sent me notes and I still remember them. They mostly started the same way. I'm sending you an anonymous note that I've struggled to. People very, very close to me sent me notes. I've struggled too. Thank you for sharing. And I was like, whoa. I had another good friend who I call my accountability partner. She was going through many of the same things. And so we talked a lot about it. And I was like, I wanted to write a book on depression. That's what I was going to call it. It was going to be my depression book. Thank God for publishers. <laughs> and thank God for Our Daily Bread and, and the team there. They came back with that title of Navigating the Blues. I was like, ooh. That's deep because people can feel that better than my book on depression, right? Because (laughs) some people haven't even admitted to having depression and that's okay. And it takes it from worry, anxiety, and depression. And when that helps, steals your hope. So it makes it a little more palatable for you to pick up that book and look through it. And and there's something in that phrase, like I've heard growing up in a black community, you know, you know, we have, first of all, the music genre, yes, the blues, yes. which are laments if you've ever heard Absolutely. one. It's, Absolutely. You know, like the kind of like David in the Psalms, exactly. you know, like, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Yeah. That's, that's what the blues is. Exactly. Yeah. And you do quote a lot of Psalms, you know, and, and is David someone that you've experienced inspiration from? David is literally my favorite person in the Bible. <laughs> I mm. try to change that narrative as I learn more about David. <laughs> yes. But, right. but I really feel feel a little bit probably of that charmed life that we hear Mm. of David, but baby, that comes at a cost, right? And it reminds us to be humble and and to go back to the basics and don't stray too far. Get you a good Nathan in your life. Who can you trust to speak Mm. into that? All kinds of things. It impacts your family, baby. You got to take care of that family first or you going to find some issues happening around there. So I could go on and on about David. So he is one of my favorite people. But then you realize David pours his heart 
out yeah. in many of those psalms. My goodness, gut wrenching stuff, right? <laughs> yeah, like and and you like you said, it's complicated. It's dark in areas, but the fact that he puts himself on blast, right? You know what I mean? Yep. Like he writes Psalm fifty one. Somebody didn't write Psalm fifty one about him. He wrote it. Right, right. Cleanse me, Lord, and create in me a clean heart. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. right. So, and I guess this is interesting arc that we see where, you know, so yes, uh, we have Navigating the Blues, but when Our Daily Bread published this, you were just an author. I was just an author. I was a freelancer. Yeah. Yeah. Now you are an editor yourself. Yeah. Executive editor of Voices. Tell us about that role, you know, and why you decided to say yes to it and what does it mean to you? That is that role reminds me too, Rasul, of I think I said earlier about you can't plan your life. And and mm-hmm. I was definitely one of those people, five year plans. Those were the things they taught us, right? Make a plan. What do you want to do? Create five things of interest or whatever. My plan looked like African American culture, Christian, education devotions. <laughs> that That's who I really, at the center, as I reflect, that's who I am. But I didn't know there was a job that could encompass that. Like, who thinks that that's a job that you can get all of those things in? And my goodness, I actually met Chrysanthia Floyd, our publisher. I met her when I was working at Tyndale, where she was working at Zondervan, and we immediately just glommed onto each other. We're like, meet you in the back after. And it was very nice to meet someone in the evangelical Christian publishing world who looked like me. And we just kept in touch. And when she became publisher, she was like, we want you to write for Our Daily Bread. I started writing for the devotions. That was great. Then she hooked me up with Joyce Dinkins, who was then the uh, executive editor, kind of the founder of Voices. And she said, you got any book ideas? I was like, what? (laughs) Someone's asking if you got some book ideas. I literally sent Joyce maybe two or three ideas. One happened to be my depression book. And she was like, how are you going to send me three great ideas? Can you pick one of these and write a proposal? And that's actually how it came about. And Our Daily Bread was a wonderful, wonderful partner. Um, it, It became a little scary bearing so much of my soul to a place Mm. I ended up becoming an employee (laughs) with just a few months later. But I think it worked out well because it also gives me, Rasul, the opportunity to understand the author's journey as they Mm. come and collaborate with us at Our Daily Bread. I I, I sit in both seats as the Mm. editor and then sometimes I sit as a writer, as a developer. So, And I think I can better serve people by understanding mm. the role of an author at Our Daily Bread. That's great. And we are glad that you are here. Thank and, you. <laughs> and it's just, a, it's so cool to see the journey of how God did give you the desires of your heart. Amen. So that that very thing that at that meeting that you were at, and, you know, as a college student, it was like, yes. look, align the desires to God and he will give it to you. Publishing, Amen. devotionals, African-American community. So Amen. I'm going to get you out here with this last question. Amen. So, Speaking of story arcs, you now have a daughter. Mm-hmm. And as she is in this phase that, you know, a how old is she now? She's 13. She's a She's full 13. blown teenager, official right. teenager. <laughs> so what are you hoping to pass on to her from your journey? That's a beautiful question. I, I think about it a lot because I've also done a lot of youth ministry. Even mm. well before I was married, well before I had Kayla, I worked very closely with teen Sunday school as well as a, a ministry we have at church called Intenjani, which is just for girls. It's a rites of passage. So I used to tell myself as a single woman, I didn't feel barren. I didn't feel fruitless. I felt like I had sown seeds into others' lives. And I and I truly believe that. But here it comes where the youth leader becomes a mama <laughs> to, to the very girl that she's mentoring and shaping. And, and, and it looks different. It feels differently. One, I pray, I speak to Kayla often that I want her to know God. I want her to develop that relationship because I honestly believe that's an anchor. And if Mm. that's in place, she can Mm. go away and do whatever she wants to her freshman year, right? And well, Mm. we hope not. But she has a foundation. She knows where to come back to. One of the beautiful things which someone else said, oh, that's so different. I've gotten to read my books with Kayla. There was a moment where she read one. I wrote a devotional for teen girls as well. And she read it 
word for word on our way to school each morning. That was special, not just because she was reading the words I wrote, but she got curious. She was like, you wrote this? You, you That's you? You're not shy. Why'd you write about a shy girl? And I would talk about, you know, being shy and just she's a big critic. One of my favorite moments was um, she was riding in the car with me and I had one of my books in the back of the car, you know how we do. And it was Successful Leaders of the Bible. And it was the story of Joseph. And in it, I wrote a line that said, Joseph dreamed this, but often dreams don't play out the way they play out in our heads. That's that's my song, right? That's my theme, right? (laughs) And Kayla was reading the book, and it's very simply written. That is also one of my styles. I try to make it approachable. Kayla was reading this book. She had to be second or third grade. And she was like, that's true. I was like, (laughs) I turned around. I was like, what are you reading? And she read that line to me. And it was just so sweet to recognize, although I'm not sure she got the depth of what I was saying there, but she was like, you you have a dream and it doesn't always come out that way. They don't play out that way. And I just said, baby, if you could remember that. Mm. Remember the words you read in the backseat of your mama car from a book she mm. wrote. I pray that that can shape you and that mm. you can remember that God is with you, helping shape those dreams in whichever way they turn out. And I just, I pray that over her even now. And mm. if that can be the case, if that's what she can take with her, I think she'll be all right. This is where you're from. I'm Rasul Berry. And remember, it's not just about where you're at. It's also about where you're from. This show was produced by Ryan Clevenger and Mary Jo Clark. I also want to thank Mark Pate and Pam Bookout for their help in supporting and promoting where you're from. Thanks, y'all. Where You're From is part of the Voices Collection from Our Daily Bread Ministries.